You're listening to the Meditation and Attachment Podcast with George Haas. For more information, please visit our website at www.metagroup.org. That's www.m-e-t-t-a-g-r-o-u-p.org. If you are a child and your caregiver attends to you 30% of the time or better, in a way that meets your actual needs, then you develop a sense of yourself as somebody who's competent to get your needs met. And then you develop a view of the world as a place where uh, people will meet your needs. And then you go about your life as if that were true. Um, If, on the other hand, your attachment requests to your caregiver are consistently rejected or misattuned to. So this would be a description of an anxious, avoidant child. Then you develop the perception of yourself as somebody who's completely incapable of getting their needs met uh, and that other people won't meet your needs. But that becomes so painful that you repress awareness of it. And in, in, it, in its place, you create a sense of, I am totally awesome and totally capable of getting my needs met, but quite frankly, the rest of you are not up to meeting them. So I would be involved in a mutual exchange of care if you were capable of meeting my needs, but since you are not... I'm going to feel free to take from you whatever I want without having to reciprocate. Um, Perhaps you're aware of the orange clown (laughs) who lives in the White House. (laughs) He's like the poster boy for a dismissing adult. An avoidant child becomes a dismissing adult. I'm going to be a little bit... um, harsh in my characterizations of these attachment strategies so um, I find it relieves some of the stress about determining which one you have. (laughs) 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 Secure is okay. So, Uh, mm -hmm. I'm sorry I came in late, but um, did you explain the dismissive type? This is what I'm explaining now. So I'll get it. So a dismissing person views themselves as actually extraordinary and totally capable. And they view all of the rest of us as incapable, which creates in them a moral justification to take from you whatever they want and not have to reciprocate. With the explanation that if if you were actually capable of meeting their needs, they would be in a mutual exchange with you, but since you're not they feel okay to take from you whatever they want. Um, I'm going to continue with the view and then I'll come back to mechanisms. Of of, uh, An anxious, ambivalent child is someone whose caregiver provided inconsistent care. So um, you present uh, your attachment request and one time they meet it. And one time they miss a tune, and one time uh, they blank you, or however they respond to it, so that you don't ever develop a sense of capability. You can ask over and over again, and sometimes you get it, 
and sometimes you don't, and you can't make sense out of it. And so you develop a self-image or a working model of self that is somebody who is not capable. And you develop a working image of everyone else as strangely capable. They've managed to figure it out. So all you have to do to get through life is convince one of them to take care of you. And um, so that's um, uh, the preoccupied adult. The fearful adult, or the fearful child, which is the disorganized child, um, wants love and affection, but at the same time they're frightened of the caregiver. So this is usually on the other side of the trauma line, where the caregiver is also harming. So the child wants closeness to the caregiver, but the caregiver also harms them. How do you make sense of that? So they develop a view that they're incapable of getting their needs met, but actually everyone else is potentially harmful, potentially dangerous. So this is an avoidance strategy. Um, secure people have a tendency to be authentic and to ask for what they want because they've learned that uh, authenticity and asking for what you want gives you the best chance of actually getting it strange view, right? <laughs> if you ask for what you want, you have a better chance of getting it than if you don't. How does that figure out? Right? If you're authentic, then the people who like you come forward uh, and are interested in you, and uh, you don't learn the skill of inauthenticity because you don't need it. One of the things that makes uh, people who are inauthentic so difficult uh, Secure relationships are so difficult for people who develop the capacity for inauthenticity. Is authentic people don't see the value of inauthenticity. It doesn't make any sense to them. They've always gotten what they've wanted by being perfectly authentic and asking directly for what they want. Why would you be inauthentic and manipulative to try and get what you want? It seems like a waste of energy. And then you can get the rug pulled out of you if somebody figures out that that's what you've done. Um, dismissing people, so the, the, the strategy of, of the secure person is quite varied. Um, the, um, they're, they have a coherent narrative of the life that they've had. They, they have the capacity to mentalize. They're aware of mind states. They have developed uh, uh, functioning mind states. Uh, for instance, uh, early on in your relationship to your primary caregiver, you're supposed to figure out that you have your own agenda and they have their own agenda and that that's okay. But in insecure relationships, often you don't learn that or you, or, or you learn that your agenda is not okay. Um, we have these two great means of being in the world. One is attachment relationships and one is exploration. And so... To, the secure people are good at exploring. They, they actually put energy into things that have meaning to them. They're good at sharing them. And this happens in this exercise. If you've ever been around small children, they're blobs in the beginning, if you notice that. We like to call that the blob stage, where they can't even sit up or roll themselves over. And then they do tens of thousands of tiny baby crunches. Have you seen that? Where they try to sit up. <laughs> They finally develop enough abdominal strength where they can sit up. 
and then they like to sit right next to their their caregiver and then eventually they'll figure out how to roll over and then they'll creep that's where they sort of slide themselves across the floor and then they'll do tens of thousands of little baby push-ups and they'll get strong enough to be up on all four and then they go <laughs> this is the, the beginning of exploration I have an agenda which is separate from my caregiver's agenda and I can go satisfy myself so first they crawl out a little bit and then they look around to see if they've got approval from the caregiver to keep going and if they do they'll crawl to the edge of the room and they'll look around and want this, this contact this sense of uh, reassurance and then they'll, they'll crawl out the door and they'll crawl right back in to make sure that the, the caregiver is there. This is how you develop what's called object constancy, right? That if you don't see your caregiver, they still exist somewhere and you can find them again. And the more secure a child is, the greater the range of exploration that they'll do. But then they find things and they come back and they offer them. Have you ever had a toddler hand you something? And then you're supposed to look at it and engage in it and then hand it back to them. And then they go find something else and they hand it to you. What they're learning to do and what you're encouraging is the process of sharing the exploration. That you're demonstrating to the child that their exploration has meaning and that it's a, it's a um, currency of exchange. That they can go find something that they think is interesting and they can offer it to you and you can reflect uh, back to them that they're valuable and their exploration is interesting and you're, you're wanting to know. If you have those experiences as children, you just take it for granted that people will be interested in your exploration and you'll be engaged in exploring and sharing and exploring and sharing and you'll also be interested in the other person's exploration and you'll be encouraging of the satisfaction that you find in your exploration in your uh, partner. This is friendship or uh, romantic. You know, imagine you, you get an intimate uh, explanation of some person's exploration which cuts down your need to explore by half or by every person that you engage with. It's a whole amazing interchange of what's interesting and it's revealing uh, about the other person so you really get to know somebody through their willingness to authentically share with you what they found out, what they think is interesting, what they think is funny what they think is amazing um, but if you don't have that experience, if your caregiver is annoyed and takes the thing from you and puts it on a high shelf so you can't have it anymore, or they just totally, can't you see I'm talking on the phone, or can't you see I'm talking to adults? I hear this all the time, and it's so painful. The, the child is wanting uh, this endorsement of their existence, of their value, and, and, and they're being blocked in that. And their attachment request is being rejected. Small children are entirely dependent for their survival on their caregiver, and so it takes on an uh, urgency that uh, we may not find. Um, in extended family situations, in alloparenting is the new term for it in, in the West, um, if mommy's irritated and auntie is right there, you can run off to auntie and, and still have your attachment needs met, right? But if mommy is the only one or daddy is the only one and they're both 
uh, upset, then you have to, as a child, tolerate nobody being there for you. So the dismissing a child is re their attachment requests are either overtly rejected or there's a misattunement between caregiver and uh, child. Um, this creates the experience of terrible sadness in a child, which is uh, unbearable, and so the, the, the mechanism uh, of repression comes in. And so uh, uh, avoidant children begin to suppress, repress awareness. Repress is an automatic, unconscious process. Awareness of the terrible sadness, and in repressing awareness of the terrible sadness, they repress awareness of all of their emotion. And in repressing awareness of all of their emotion, they repress the empathetic experience of others. Now, depending on how bad it is, uh, they can repress all empathetic experience, but most of the time it's a repression of, of the third level, the compassionate empathy, and a partial suppression of the second, and they retain uh, awareness of the first level of empathy. If they repress all empathy, then we tend to think of them as sociopaths or narcissistic personalities. Um, so they're also the most rigid. They have the capacity to idealize and they have derogating anger. Each of the attachment strategies has a, a use of anger. Secure people get mad about the conditions of the present moment and when the, they affect a change on the conditions of the present moment, they settle down and they easily forgive. They don't hold grudges. They don't... Um, drop the attachment because um, some, some condition went wrong. Dismissing uh, adults, which are avoidant children, they use a derogating anger to regulate their abandonment terror. If, you, if they think that you're going to leave them, they devalue your, that you in their mind to where you're not worth anything. So whether you leave them or not is irrelevant sort of saw that in the hearings where uh, everybody in the world thinks that the uh, former FBI director uh, did damage to Trump and Trump's uh, response was that he was completely vindicated by the testimony. Right? It's that interesting, strange view. The power of positive thinking. Well, that's idealizing, right? Idealizing. The reason that uh, dismissing children are um, good at idealizing is that the only way that they can get attention from their caregivers is by pre presenting to the caregiver an idealized version of the caregiver. So imagine the child who knows that he's getting terrible care, but to get any care at all has to idealize the parent that's providing the terrible care. What kind of schism internally that would cause for a child, but how intense the sadness would be. Is that where you would characterize also put in, like, bipolar? No. Bipolar? No, bipolar Depression. is something different. Uh, dismissing people tend not to be depressed. Um, they don't really... Um, they have no awareness of their emotions, and depression is the absence of emotion. They, they wouldn't even hardly notice it. 
No, no, not at all. They tend to be idealizing, so everything is great, great, great. Um, I'm fantastic at everything. I'm amazing. I'm great. You, on the other hand, are pathetic. That's kind of the experience of a dismissing person. Um, the bad news for all you single people is that they don't form lasting relationships so that if you're on the dating scene and you're older than your mid-30s, then seven out of ten people that you're likely to date are going to be dismissive. <laughs> so the, the first thing you should do is evaluate their attachment strategy. <laughs> One of the characteristics of dismissing attachment is that they don't remember their childhood. So anything before puberty, they don't actually remember. So they, they're very defensive of their worldview. And the reason that they're so defensive of their worldview is that they don't have empathy. So they can't read you. And if they don't have the second level of empathy, they can't recognize what your emotional response is to anything. Uh, Profoundly dismissing people. If you don't tell them in words how you're feeling, they have no way of knowing. And so this makes them very dependent on the idea that they have about you rather than you. And if you contradict their idea about you, they tend to be very seductive or very bullying in their response to that. They try and seduce you into their view of you, which is also known as gaslighting term gaslighting. So you often have a sense of unreality in your relationship to them because they don't, they keep contradicting your uh, experience of things and either they're seducing or bullying you into accepting their view and it makes you crazy in terms of understanding what's actually happening. This is pink. No, that's not pink, it's blue. No, 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 this is pink. No, no, you're wrong, it's blue. And then you say, is it really, is it really blue? Going, it's absolutely blue. And then you're having the experience of pink and wondering whether or not you're wrong and it's actually blue, which is very, I don't know if you've, if you've been around it, it's, it's very difficult to manage. The type of person that says, no, you're not feeling that. Yeah, exactly, totally. You're not feeling that. I would know if you were feeling that. Actually, they have no way of knowing. <laughs> now, so opening the window of compassion, what is, what is it like to be a child where every attempt you make at connecting to someone is rejected? How painful is that? Uh, it's actually dismissing people who have the most painful childhood. Even people who have trauma probably have less pain childhood than people who grow up in that environment where they're never mirrored, they're never acknowledged. Uh, it's a terrible sadness, a terrible dread that arises in them, and without uh, the capacity to repress it, it would be unsurvivable. Uh, but it's also very limiting in terms of adult relationships. Um, but when you meet them, they're very gregarious. The, the ones that are skilled are incredibly seductive and vivacious, and you really want, you're really drawn to them. And um, when they see you as a big orange that they're then going to juice, 
or psychic energy, and as soon as they've gotten all your juice, they'll buzz off to the next. Sorry, uh, this is the way that I like to talk about it. Um, we, when we find ourselves in relationships with very dismissing people, and then because they never follow through on anything that they say, because actually what they wanted was the juice in the moment, and you gave them the juice, and if they told you that they were going to do A, B, and C for you, um, what they wanted was the juice, and you gave it to them, and so they never had any intention of doing A, B, or C for you. And then you actually are expecting them to do A, B, and C. When they don't, you present them with a complaint about the fact that they don't follow through on anything they say, and then they threaten to abandon you if you don't accept that they're not going to do it. And if you're not, in a, if you're not secure and you're afraid uh, to be abandoned, you'll capitulate and go along with it. And so it, in children, what it does is it creates a split between what people say they're going to do and what they actually do, and you discount the doing, and you go along with what they say. And you're constantly accepting what they say, and you're never comparing it to what they do, so you may not even notice that they never follow through deliver on what they say. So that's dismissing. And just, all of these are spectrums, so there's a gradation of it. Um, but highly dismissing people, if you don't, they'll, they'll ask you to tell them what you're feeling in words, and if you don't do it, they have no way of knowing. And that creates an almost panic level of fear in them. If you look at what we use empathy for, we read the person's exterior presentation and then we compare that to the internal felt sense of them. And if they match, we believe them. We believe that they're telling us the truth or that their presentation is authentic. And if they don't match, we question their veracity. But if you don't have the capacity of either of them, it's like being blind. And, and so um, you go along with people to get them to tell you in words how they're feeling so you know what to do. You've learned what to do even though you don't feel it. But if they stop telling you, then you're in a state of near panic and it creates extreme responses. So 30% of people are secure, 20% are in the dismissing category. 30% of people in the dismissing category have addiction issues. Are they more likely to be abusers? Um, that also depends on the... Con that actually is a, a different thing. It's a conflict resolution system, which is different. Um, um, people who are abusing, abusive adults have been abused as children. Typically, it's almost one-to-one -one in its correlation. So that if you grew up in a household where the main experience was just neglect... It's unlikely that that would happen. So neglect, profound neglect, is the um, cause of dismissing attachment strategy. And so um, because the neglect is so profound, they tend to be auto-regulators. They didn't even learn the external regulation of the next step of emotional development, and they don't have awareness that their emotions need to be regulated. They're the ones who are screaming at you that they're not angry. 
because they have no sense of being angry, no sense of what it is. Um, but, uh, um, paradoxically, it, it is, um, in terms of a skill set, easier to repair than some of the further outlying ones. <coughs> The last thing I'll say about dismissing is that it's a deactivating arousal strategy in the brain. So um, if they, are, they have the perception of being abandoned, they switch off their attachment mechanism, which allows them to be derogating in their anger. Um, they don't value you any longer, and they're willing to lash out. Uh, devalue. If you don't count as anything, losing you doesn't matter. They tend to also uh, idealize other people not in the relationship, so they have plan. As I was working with one, I said, so you probably have a plan A, a plan B, and he said, yeah, B, C, D, E, F, G, H. They idealize other people, so they'll either be actively engaged in relationships outside of a primary relationship where they'll have set up the possibility of a relationship where they'll just have a fantasy experience of other people so that they if you were to leave them they would not be devastated they would simply move on to the next person so you as the person who's been engaged in the relationship feels you know four days later they've moved in with somebody else and you're thinking they didn't really care about me, but they did really care about me, but they cannot be alone. The, the, the distress of being alone is so great that they'll accept any alternative to it. So that's dismissing. Um, they have good exploration skills. They sometimes get into a pseudo-exploration, so they're very sensitive to social status. So they'll pursue and do well in things that have high social status, even if they don't have meaning. So they may be engaged in things that tend to be highly valued culturally, but not really resonate personally with them, and so it doesn't provide meaning in, in their life. But they tend, you know, this is the, the classic Wall Streeter, for instance, is this profile. They don't care at all that they're paving the Amazon because the money gives them high social status. Um, preoccupied people, on the other end, are uh, the child that has an inconsistent care or a role reversal, where the, the parent is fragile and requires the child to take care of them, so that the, the parent puts the child in the, in the position of uh, caregiver. So you'll... If you meet these kids around six years old, they become really bossy and an adult. You know, it's the 40-year-old, six-year-old. You've probably heard that stereotype. Um, they become frightened that the caregiver is so unreliable or that when they get back, having left the caregiver, that they're so emotionally dysregulated that it's overwhelming for them to have to take on the emotional regulation of their caregiver. They know that if they don't do that, that, the, that it gets really dicey in the home. The, the care just falls off completely so that they, they really become, when we say preoccupied, they become preoccupied with the mind state of their caregiver so that they can regulate them, so that they can get care from them. And it creates a loop 
of what do I have to do to get you to take care of me? That's the loop of the of the preoccupied mind. So whereas the dismissing deactivates the attachment strategy in the preoccupied person, the attachment strategy becomes hyperactivated. So hyperactivated attachment means that you're constantly seeking proximity so that in the preoccupied mind, proximity is the main goal. Um, inauthenticity, they're very inauthentic about that. Uh, they don't want to say that I just need to be with you. Uh, and they don't want to ask directly for what they want. So they tend to manipulate. They're very, the most manipulative, the most inauthentic. Um, <clears throat> they tend to take over uh, tasks for the, their uh, attachment figure that the attachment figure should rightly be doing because they think that if they can create a dependency in the attachment figure that they won't be left. Contrasting that to the dismissing person, in the beginning the dismissing person is very seductive and then as soon as they think they've got you hooked, they begin to withdraw so that you'll pursue them. The dismissing person feels reassured that you won't leave them because you're pursuing them. Um, so you might have guessed that dismissing and preoccupied people uh, tend to couple. Secure and secure is the most popular coupling, and the second most popular is dismissing with preoccupied. The dismissing person is withdrawing, and the preoccupied person wants proximity above all else so that they pursue the dismissing partner. And that creates a stable bond, which can be lifelong, tends to be pretty good. I, I just need to emphasize here that organized attachment, secure, dismissing, and preoccupied on the helpless end are organized and in no way pathological. It's a normal outcome of childhood, and they've, they all function pretty well in the world. This is a, 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 a normal functioning people. Dismissing people tend to do a little bit better financially because they're more focused on high status. Uh, activities and in our culture money is probably the highest status out of everything um, wouldn't be marvelous if compassion had any status <laughs> or kindness had status wouldn't that be amazing <laughs> greed that's what has status Preoccupied people, because proximity is the main goal and because they need to stay with their caregiver in order to ensure that they get any care at all, abandon their own exploration. Uh, and then they demand of their, their uh, attachment figures that they be compensated for the abandonment of their exploration. The problem is that nobody can uh, compensate you for abandoning your own exploration. Nobody can provide enough meaning to you to replace your uh, um, exploration. So in preoccupied people, there's almost a constant sense of deprivation, of not having enough. And so they seem to be never satisfied with what you do for them. It's an endless uh, ongoing request. 
uh, and it's inauthentic because they're asking you to do things for them. They're not saying that I, I feel a terrible emptiness because I can't explore and you need to compensate me for that because I'm taking care of you. Um, and, and both the dismissing and the preoccupied are individual psychology systems. So the, the preoccupied person is taking care of the attachment figure so the attachment figure will take care of them. So they're constantly trying to figure out what they have to do to get care, which is not the same thing as taking care of someone. The dismissing person is not willing to reciprocate because to reciprocate with somebody is to, in some sense, cause them to re-experience the rejection of their childhood, that to put themselves in a vulnerable position of having to ask somebody else to take care of them reminds them of the childhood spent asking for care and not getting it. And it just throws them into the terrible sadness. So they take. It isn't that the child stops getting their needs met. They stop asking and start taking because that's what they have to do. There's a spectrum of, of preoccupied. The helpless end is... Uh, a presentation of helplessness in order to get care. And a, and a preoccupied loop would be somebody presenting you a problem and asking you how you, how you might help them solve it. And uh, in, initially you're very happy to offer something, but then they reject it and they represent the problem in a slightly modified way. And then you offer to help again and they reject that and then they represent the problem in a slightly altered way. And you offer to help them and they reject that and they represent the problem in a slightly altered way and you begin to have this searing feeling of inadequacy and helplessness yourself because <clears throat> they've just asked you to help them eight times and every suggestion you've had has been rejected and then you're looking at them and think God you thought of more things to do for that than I could possibly think of you're not actually helpless Actually, you're totally competent. Why are you asking me to help you? You're, you're inauthentic. And so that sense of... Um, often you'll find that a preoccupied person will ask you to help with something that they've already made a decision about and already put in motion, and you, you find yourself puzzled by why they would come at you in that way. And then you discover it actually that it's just the proximity, and if you actually help them, then the need for the proximity ends, and they can't bear the the loss of proximity. They often trade sex for proximity, and it's a confusing sexual relationship with them because they don't want sexual gratification, they want proximity, and they're willing to present an inauthentic expression of sexuality to get proximity, and so the sex is, uh, is uh, problematic in those relationships. The far end of the, of the um, preoccupied strategy is called helpless, uh, sorry, uh, fearful preoccupied, and that's on the other side of the trauma line. So to get there, uh, trauma needed to happen. We talk about big T trauma and small T trauma. Big T trauma is like a, a single event, a big loss. A parent dies or loss 
We have three things that we, we concern ourselves with. Our attachment figures, our actual people, our, the way that we make our way in the world, the way that we make a living, and uh, our social status. We're highly social creatures. Every time we walk into a room, we evaluate our relative social status to everybody else, where we are pegged. Anybody ride horses? Do you, have you ever been? Horses are also herd animals, and they have the same hierarchy of social structure. If you try to ride in a line with horses that are just for hire, you'll notice that the horses find their own order, and if you try to move them out of the order, the horses will fight with each other because they're so pegged to their social status, and the high-status horses go first and down the line. Fearful, preoccupied people, um, the main difference is that the internal experience of a preoccupied person is so focused on the mind state of the other person and so focused on the empathetic experience of the other person that the empathetic experience becomes the dominant emotional experience. So that if a preoccupied person wants to feel emotionally regulated, they need to be within proximity to their attachment figure, or they can't regulate the emotions of the other person to feel regulated. Does that make that that made sense, right? Uh, the preoccupied people get so focused on the mind state of their attachment figure that it displaces awareness of their own feeling. Um, their, their, their experience of the empathetic experience of their attachment figure becomes the dominant emotional landscape for them, and their own emotions become secondary. Most uh, uh, people who are not preoccupied, their own emotions are the dominant, and the empathetic experience is secondary, so it's a flip of that. In order for a preoccupied person to feel emotionally regulated, it, they have to be in proximity to the attachment figure so that they can feel the empathetic connection because that's their primary emotional experience. And if they're separated from their uh, attachment figure, it can be a bewildering internal experience of dysregulation. On the helpless end of preoccupied, um, there's still some awareness of their own emotional experience so that they can co-regulate with their attachment figure. This is an external regulation process. They're externally regulated by their attachment figure. They haven't learned co-regulation and they haven't learned mastery of their own emotional regulation, so they're dependent on the, the other person to emotionally regulate them. They don't do it for themselves. That creates the sense of helplessness. They can get uh, hyperactivated and feel crazy internally and require the other person to help regulate them. That's why the, the need for proximity can be so urgent. Um, the problem on the fearful end is that the, uh, there can be in tantrum mode, you know, the stages of distress in humans. Pay attention to a two-year-old the next time you're around one. They'll be happily walking around and doing their thing, and then suddenly they'll have the activation of the attachment mechanism, and they'll need their caregiver. And what do they do? They just go like this. A secure child will literally, in the middle of anything, just go like this when their attachment mechanism goes off, because their expectation is that someone will come. 
They don't have to do anything special. All they have to do is indicate and someone will come because that's been their experience. People pay attention to them. They want to make sure they're okay. And so somebody sees them going like this and they just scoop them up. If nobody comes, they get a bewildered look on their face. I put my arms up. Where is the world? And that bewildered look will turn into a whimper. Have you ever been standing in a group of parents at some you know, four-year-old's birthday party, the, the racket of the kids, and then one person picks up the whimper of their child and they're, they're looking for the child, and then the whimper turns into an intermittent cry, and then the intermittent cry turns into a continuous cry, and those of you who have had kids know this, and they, the continuous cry turns into a tantrum, the shrieking sound of urgent need for attachment. <clears throat> we are biochemical. Do you know how much chemicals have to be dumped into the system to get a kid to go into tantrum? Do you know how long it takes for the liver to filter out? 20 minutes to filter that out, half hour. If you let your kid go into tantrum mode, you have a half hour of heavy work to do to get them to calm down, which is why parents are so sensitive to the whimper. Oh, my God. He could be in a tantrum any second. Like, where is he? Where is she? <laughs> or you have a parent who doesn't care that you're in tantrum it's a lot of energy and so you just stop that's the dismissing kid they don't tantrum they don't acknowledge even the coming and going of the caregiver and the caregiver thinks I have such a, a nice kid he never makes a fuss he doesn't make a fuss because he's had to suppress his entire emotional system in order to survive the constant rejection On the fearful end of preoccupied, the internal experience of that person is almost in full-blown tantrum mode the whole time. The, the internal emotional distress is so intense that co-regulation isn't an option for them. So you truly are helpless to help them when they get badly dysregulated. And so that's when you get into the, the cutting and the, the, the addiction processes is a an attempt to get some external way of regulating the, the internal experiences. Um, this is the borderline person. Um, so this is hyperactivation, in, which is different from deactivation. If you move into the further out from secure, you're talking about a fearful avoidant adult, which is the disorganized child. The, the dilemma for the, the disorganized child is that they both need their caregiver for, for comfort and they're afraid to go to them. So that you'll notice in children that the, the child will have the impulse to run to the caregiver for protection, but then they'll stop short. They don't actually ever make contact with the adult or they run behind them. They tend have a tendency to stand outside arm's length of their caregiver because they're afraid of what will happen to them if they get too close to the caregiver. Um, they have the attachment mechanism goes off and then the fight or flight mechanism goes off and they cancel each other out and it creates a kind of inconsolable sorrow in the, in the, the disorganized child. You'll notice them because they're the ones that just collapse and uh, howl in 
discomfort, but they don't make any attempt to reach out to anyone. They're the most socially isolated. And there's almost always uh, abuse, some kind of harm. Or the caregiver is so frightened of being a caregiver that when the child attempts to empathetically connect to them, they're filled with the, the terrible dread of the parent, and so they withdraw from it. That's 30% of people are in that category. Uh, organized attachment means that you have the capacity for reliability, and disorganized attachment means you're not reliable. Well, the reason that fearful avoidant adults think that there are no secure people is that secure people don't do unreliability. You, you don't show up the way you're supposed to one or two times, and they move on. They don't really even think about it. They just think that you're not reliable and not worth the investment of social capital. We have limited social capital, each of us. You know, I'd like to talk about this in American terms. <laughs> Are you going to invest in a relationship that doesn't return care? Because if you do, you'll burn out. That's the problem. If you're preoccupied, then you're quite aware of the burnout because it happens over and over again. You give, give, give to, uh, to get your needs met, and they don't really get met very well, and then you burn out from it, and you leave in a huff. And then if you're with a dismissing partner, they run after you, and they seduce you, and you ignore the fact that they don't actually do any of the stuff they said they'll do you come back to them and begin the dance again. <clears throat> Fearful avoidant um, um, people have a, 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 ki a kindness to them, a sweetness to them that is incredibly attractive in adult relationships. They've had terrible experiences and their, resp their response to it typically is to uh, come out with, with a kindness, an understanding. But they perseverate. If something happens which causes their attachment mechanism to go off, they go into a perseverating mind where they need to come up with the perfect way of addressing the attachment request so that they're not killed. That's actually the intensity of that experience for them. And they can perseverate for two hours, for two weeks, for two months, for two years, until they figure out the perfect way to come back. And once they figure it out, they come back, and they present themselves as if there's been no interval. Because for them, they've been perseverating the whole time, and it's still fresh for them. If you encounter a fearful avoidant person and something goes wrong in the relationship and they just simply disappear for two months and you're not fearful avoidant, you've probably stopped thinking about them and started thinking about something else and then they show up without any explanation for what happened, uh, ready to go again in the relationships. Now, fearful avoidant is under which one? Preoccupied, dismissing? Or no, it's its, its own category. It's, its own. It's a dis, dis, it is a disorganized, disoriented child or a fearful avoidant adult. 
Seventy well, percent of that category is addicted. And that's under the basic disorganized. This is a disorganized attachment strategy. It's an insecure disorganized attachment strategy. They're the sweetest people on the planet. You just love them, and then they don't show up too many times, and then you don't rely on them. <clears throat> we do not put a lot of energy into relationships that we don't rely on because we don't have that much energy to put. We tend to put energy into relationships that we can rely on. So they're the most socially isolated. Social isolation is extraordinarily painful. So depending on the degree to which you tolerate social isolation in your life, you live at a level of pain. <clears throat> um, mm -hmm. So where does that fall into the category of introvert and extrovert? Different. Introverts will say they like their isolation and that's where they get rejuvenated. Um, so... I'm going to define introvert and extrovert to the way that I think about it. Extroverted people look to other people for approval, and that's where they get that sense of being good. Introverted people look inwardly for a sense of approval. So um, it's a different, different gauge. You can have introverted or extroverted and uh, any of the attachment strategies. Fearful avoidant people tend to have a life that's characterized by some beginnings or lots of really good, hopeful beginnings, some middles and very few completions. Um, in our culture, really you need to be involved in a group to succeed at a, at a, a big level. And because of the social skills of the fearful avoidant, they don't tend to, to fit in groups very well. Um, so they're sweet and kind, and, and they, they get easy access to being invited in, but then they, they're so unreliable that they don't last, and they're actually pushed out. That's the cycle. Uh, the other thing that can happen is, and this is on the this disorganized side, is that the anxiety of succeeding becomes so great that they intentionally fail to relieve the anxiety of succeeding. Not that failure feels good, it actually doesn't feel good, but it, it is easier to manage than the experience of success. For uh, people who have fear of success, they're afraid that uh, autonomy and self-sufficiency will render them unlovable, and rather than be unlovable, they, they'd fail. They'd rather fail. So this is, again, coming from the experience of having your exploration inhibited, if you if you leave your caregiver to explore and then you come back excited um, uh, and they punish you because you left them, you begin to learn that succeeding is a bad thing. You don't want to succeed because uh, if you succeed, you'll be punished or, or uh, you'll lose love. That's the dynamic. How's everybody doing with this inflammation? Um, so secure people tend to go with secure people dismissing people can go with preoccupied people 
Um, I should say that when I say preoccupied people, what I mean is people who use a preoccupied attachment strategy. The attachment strategies are changeable, so you can begin to work at shifting them. Um, and each the reason why it's important to begin to understand how you work is because the thing that you need to do to shift it differs depending on what strategy you have. There isn't a generic means of doing it. Each strategy has its own benefits and deficits, and the deficits need to be reinforced in order to shift it. Um, secure people can have relationships with preoccupied people, but the danger for the secure person is that they'll become less secure in the relationship with a preoccupied person. But uh, for a preoccupied person to have a relationship with a secure person would be ideal because they, could, they can feel so reassured in the relationship that they, their mind doesn't hyperactivate. And they, they're, um, they show up because proximity is what's important to them. Dismissing people typically do not have relationships with secure people because secure people do mutual and dismissing people do not. And uh, secure people, they just don't do it. So uh, the dismissing person, while they may be very appealing, if they, don't, if they don't provide care, the secure person is not interested. And the gaslighting that uh, dismissing people tend to do doesn't work on secure people because they haven't disconnected what people do from what they say they're going to do. In fact, they're quite well connected. If you say to a secure person you're going to do this, they compare it to whether you do it or not, and if you don't do it, they think you're unreliable. So one of the repairs, of course, is to reattach what people do to what they say they're going to do and not discount it if they don't. Dismissing people can also have relationships with fearful avoidant people because they don't really even notice that the fearful avoidant person disappears and comes back. As long as they come back with juice, they're welcome. <laughs> uh, preoccupied people have secure, they have dismissing people that are in relationship. Uh, preoccupied people don't tend to have lasting relationships with other preoccupied people because there's no path. If you don't, if you don't mind an off-color thing, it's like two bottoms trying to cook up a top between them. It just doesn't work, right? Um, they tend to be, they tend to hyperactivate each other rather than settle. So uh, they can be instant BFFs, and then in a short period of time, it flames out. And uh, preoccupied people don't have relationships with fearful avoidant people because fearful avoidant people withdraw to regulate and uh, preoccupied people need proximity. So there's a constant uh, dilemma around that. Is that making sense? Fearful avoidant people don't have tendency to have uh, re relationships with secure people because they're too unreliable, and so they have relationships with dismissing people or other fearful avoidant people. The fearful avoidant, fearful avoidant relationship is probably the most common, but they're very volatile. So they, each party needing to be alone to regulate, they mostly uh, on again, off again type of dynamic in the relationship. Can, how stable are these? I mean, can you, can you turn someone like 
I've had one relationship in my whole history where I was like, oh my God, I was a different person. Right. Well, in some sense, you bring your attachment ingredients, they bring their attachment ingredients, and you cook up an attachment relationship which is exclusive to each relationship that you have. So depending on what they bring and you bring, it can be, it can be quite different. Um, setting secure relationships aside, uh, you're, one way to look at it is in one relationship, you could be preoccupied uh, if they're more dismissing than you. But if they're less dismissing than you, then you may appear to be the dismissing person in that dynamic. Is that making sense? It really depends where you are in relationship to their attachment strategy. Um, so it means everybody could carry a little bit at times of different parts, but there'll be a predominant personality part that um, will connect. This is different than personality. Uh, and no, okay. it's stable. It's stable over a lifetime unless there's some major aversion, that, uh, aversive event that happens. Oh, that 10-month-old thing. Or, right. or if you intentionally attempt to change it. Um, so in relationships, there's three mechanisms. The first is attachment, and uh, that's whether you make relationships and how they operate. The second level is who you pick, right? Um, and these are different mechanisms. Who looks attractive is a different kind of conditioning than how you are in relationships in terms of your attachment mechanism. And the third level is uh, conflict resolution. How do you resolve conflicts in the relationship? Those, all of those have to match well. Um, I like to say, if you grow up in a household where screaming is the ordinary experience at every dinner, it's not that big a deal to you. If you grow up in a house where nobody ever screams, then those two don't relate very well because the person who grew up in a household where nobody ever screams has a totally different caliber for what screaming means. And you would have to somehow negotiate that so that if you can repair, if you have an attachment disturbance and so you don't form relationships and you repair that, then you're going to be at the level of who do you pick. If you pick somebody that you actually can have a stable relationship with, then the most common cause of relationship failure is that you can't negotiate conflict resolution in the relationship without causing it, without threatening the relationship. Is that making sense? So you have to examine where you're at at all of those levels and you have to do the thing that you need to do to fix it. Remember that the unconscious body-mind will identify people that remind them of the pattern of care that you've received as a child. That's who glows. So you need to understand that if you don't like the care that you got as a kid and you don't want to have it anymore, you can't go with the person who glows. You have to switch to manual. <laughs> I like to say dating is interviewing your potential caregiver for a job. <laughs> so you need to know what kind of care you want, right? All of you who are already coupled ignore this um, because you've already picked. 
Um, if you, um, for instance, I have zero violence. I grew up in a very violent home, and I have zero violence in my who I would pick. One incidence of violence, the relationship is over, and I won't repair it. And I'm very upfront about that. Uh, so, so people who know that, that that's likely to happen, and this happens in a third of relationships. Violence happens in a third of relationships. I won't have it, and I'm very upfront about it. And so the people that will have that move on. Um, I like people who are extraordinarily kind because my childhood was so cruel. I don't. I won't have any cruelty in a relationship. If you do it, you're done with me, and I won't repair it. And I'm very upfront about it. This is what I mean. You're negotiating a deal with somebody who's going to take care of you, understanding that you're going to have to pay them by taking care of them. So this is where the delight comes in. Do you want to take care of somebody who you think is a complete jerk? Or do you want to take care of somebody who's delightful? Do you know how much easier it is to take care of somebody who's delightful than it is to take care of somebody who's a dick? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> you pick this, right? And then you invest your resources into the relationship. If you've split off what they do from what they say, then you won't notice that they're not living up to what you want, if you're not clear about what you want. Um, if you're securely attached, you don't need to uh, switch off manual, um, switch to manual, automatic works. Um, you've got good enough care, the people who glow are people who are likely to provide good enough care, you can rely on that, and then you can engage in a relationship. Secure people tend to couple in their 20s, and they form long-lasting relationships. So if you happen to notice a secure person coming out of a relationship, you should date them before they're ready to be in another relationship, <laughs> because the window of opportunity will open and close very quickly. Right? <clears throat> Uh, if you're older than 35, 7 out of 10 people that you're going to be dating are going to be dismissive, so you should be able to figure out on the first date or two whether they're dismissive or not, and then maybe not continue to date them if you don't want that. Um, anyway. Can you tell somebody what you need without it causing... Uh, the terrible dread. <clears throat> I like to call it the earthquake and the tsunami. The earthquake of abandonment terror and the tsunami of terrible sadness. So you had to learn the skill of inauthenticity in order to survive childhood. I wish that I could say to you, you don't have to do that anymore. It's totally fine to be perfectly authentic. But the people that want you uh, the people that like that will be drawn to you. Then you have to be picky, right, about who you pick. If you present yourself as authentic, the people who want that will be drawn to it. And then you, you have people who want you authentically. If you look at somebody and you're afraid to be authentic because the terrible dread arises and you figure out what you think they want and then you do your best to manifest that in an inauthentic way and they believe you and they're attracted to you, they're attracted to you because of your inauthentic presentation. 
um, which obligates you to continue to be inauthentic in the relationship because that's what they want. I know a lot of us have this idea that I'll be the dazzling thing that they want and then I'll throw off the cloak of inauthenticity and I'll present my authentic self and they'll go, that's what I wanted all along. But as it turns out, when you throw off the cloak of inauthenticity, they say, why have you been lying to me this whole time? They're not delighted because they wanted the thing that you told them that you were. So then you're stuck. You're inauthentic the whole time. And you don't actually get your needs met because you can't ask authentically for them to be met. And so you're in a state of deprivation. You know, uh, maybe, if you've allowed yourself to be sensitive to your internal experience, what your authentic response is to the present moment. But if you think in presenting that, you'll be abandoned, you have a spike of abandonment terror. And then the inauthentic thing you could do to relieve the abandonment here arises in the mind, and if you push into the inauthentic expression, it relieves the abandonment here, and you get something out of it immediately, and it feels good. No more abandonment here. But then you become angry because you haven't been able to present yourself authentically. You become angry because you haven't been able to ask for the thing that you want, and so you have to deal with not having it. You may ask for something that you don't want, and they may give it to you, but it won't have meaning. It won't be satisfying. Does that make any sense? And you'll have it, and it won't mean anything to you. If you push in authentically, it will intensify the abandonment terror. And if you can hold on to the abandonment terror, it will dissolve as if it were the wall of a dam, and you'll be hit by a wave of terrible sadness of all of the times that you had to abandon yourself in the past in order to, to feel safe. And if you can ride that out, you'll come into a place of security in the relationship, which is totally worth doing. I can't even begin to tell you how worthwhile it is to be authentic in relationships. To be able to feel a sense of safety, to attune, to co-regulate, to be delighted by somebody, to have them the great booster of your exploration, to have your needs met in an authentic and intimate way is totally worth pushing through all of the conditioning that might prevent that from happening. You cannot make a decision to do this. You have to begin to retrain the mind because you've grown the brain that operates in the way that it operates. You have a hyperactivating mind or you have a deactivating mind, or if you're fearful avoidant, you have a hyperactivating and deactivating mind, which can go off at the same time, which is head-spinning in its presentation in the world. The child that falls in place has the attachment mechanism activated and deactivated at the same time. What do you do then? You freeze or you become passive. Fearful avoiding people seem to be very passive. They go along. And then they erupt in a terrible anger that you don't see them. They feel unseen. They're, they're completely unwilling to present themselves authentically. And if they do ask for what they need, it's in some complex Baroque riddle. <laughs> and then if you don't get the answer right, they're furious that you can't see them. 
there something like a 20 questions you can ask yourself or other people to help? It's so okay. funny that you would ask that. <laughs> <laughs> the adult attachment interview has 20 questions. <laughs> <laughs> can be administered, but there are also um, the, the questions around view, do you think of yourself as capable or not? Do you think of, of other people as uh, capable or not, really? Uh, if you answer both yes to that, then you're likely in a secure place. If you think of yourself as incapable and other people as capable, then that's a preoccupied. If you think of yourself as excellent and everybody else is not up to the match, then you're likely dismissive. And fearful avoidant people think of themselves as incapable and they think of everybody else as hostile. So that's as hostile? Or dangerous. Um, how's that? Do you want to take a, a break for 10 minutes? And then we'll, we'll do some meditation. And then if we have time, we can do a diet. <laughs> <laughs> can you put the 20 questions in the Dropbox? Or is that okay, accessible online? I can. Um, I, I'm not sure it would be helpful because it's meant to be an interview. Uh, and it needs to be scored. The AAI uses the way you use language to determine your attachment strategy, not the content of language. Yeah. Um, well, the no 20 questions. Do you have a recommendation for how we can recap all this information or go deeper in it? some books that you I will put some books into the Dropbox. One is called A General Theory of Love, which is uh, the neuroscience of attachment. And there's one called A Secure Base, which is the, the original lectures by John Balby. And there's a book called Attachment and Psychotherapy. Um, <clears throat> if you like this kind of practice, then I do a, a live uh, conference call meditation every morning at 7.30 to 7.55, and you can practice on that. I actually brought some flyers for that. Um, it's not for everybody, so if you don't like it, uh, the coupon will give you a free month. Uh, we do have a, we do tend to ask for, for a contribution for that. And then um, I also lead retreats so if you like the metta vipassana way of practicing and um, here's some coupons here morning meditation I have a retreat, a summer retreat coming up on July 3rd at the Seven Circles Center which is near Sequoia National Park so it should be three to four hours from here so I'll take a look at that um, I also do one-on-one -on -one mentoring if you want coaching in how to practice, and you can find out information about that on my website, mentorgroup.org. Um, attachment repair requires that you examine how you actually operate and then to begin to develop uh, alternative strategies. Uh, some of it is arousal-oriented, some of it is emotional regulation orientation. 
and, and often it, you require support in doing it because you have to push into the terrible sadness and the terrible dread. It's totally worth doing, but it is a lot of effort. <laughs>